Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Sean's Wildlife Podcast, exploring biodiversity, conservation, environment and our connection to nature. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm here today in Bristol with a very good friend of mine, Mary Colwell. And Mary is a fascinating person to talk to. I know you're going to enjoy the conversation we have. Mary is an award-winning broadcaster for TV, radio and internet, an author and also a conservationist. Um, I know her as a conservationist most and I really enjoyed reading her book Curlew Moon last year. And that gives us a little hint as to the focus of our conservation efforts to date, which is the wonderful wading bird, the curlew. So thank you very much, Mary, for joining us today. Um, The first question I guess I'd ask you, Mary, is um, if you explain to some of the listeners what is a curlew, because some of them may be wondering. Curlews are really, really noticeable. So they're our largest wading bird, about the size of a mallard duck, I suppose, or a herring gull sort of size, but longer legs. Um, But what's distinctive about them is their very long downward curving bill. Um, So in males, it's a little bit shorter than the females, but, you know, 10 inches long or something. It's quite long. Um, Long and elegant. Everything about them is curved and curly and watery and brown and rounded. They're just delightful, really. Quite a whimsical looking bird in a way, aren't they? They are. They're quite funny looking in a way. They're a little bit of the Serrano de Bergerac of the bird world. But um, what's most distinctive about a curly is its call. Yeah. So we're going to just play a little bit of the call now. And um, it really is a wonderful sound. I heard it. Um, heard the breeding call for the first time last year with you on Somerset Level. So let's have a listen. Fantastic sound, isn't it? It's just so evocative. And you, you can people hear so many different things when they listen to that. And that particular bubbling, rising, trilling sort of call that goes up through the scale in a sort of crescendo of notes um, is a very confusing sound in a way because the curlew makes it uh, a bit like playing a trombone in its long bill mm. and it, it, it um, mixes major and minor keys so that you don't know whether you're listening to something very happy or something very sad. Very sad. There's a, so a melancholy to it. It's isn't a there? melancholy, but there's also an ecstasy, maybe. Yeah. So it's um, it's a very complicated mix of sounds for the human ear. Yeah. Um, but extraordinary and just brightens any landscape. And having read your book about about the curlew, what struck me is the the volume of poetry and folklore and things that surrounds this bird, right? Yeah. Masses. I was really surprised. It was as though it's been there in our lives from the year dot. Mm. I mean, somehow it's just been there. And making that sound is not a very sort of friendly bird, if you like, to people who won't come and sort of sit with you like a duck will. But mm. it's there, it's noisy, and it's beautiful in the background. And that's infiltrated our minds, and we've just created the most wonderful tales about it. We've also put a lot on its shoulders, if you like. Yeah. Does a bird have shoulders? But it's... Um, <laughs> 
you know, we've we've sort of made it harbingers of doom and death as well yeah. as rather more lovely, passionate sort of poetry as well. So it's got, it's, again, a bit like it's cool. It's got a mixture of associations. Yeah. And where did the, um, I wouldn't say obsession, or maybe maybe that's the right <laughs> word. Where is. did the obsession start? Why why Curlews for you? I just don't know. Why why Manchester United? Why yeah. the colour pink? Who knows why? I think I can't actually answer that, other than I grew up um, a lot of my young life um, on the edge of the Peak District. And <clears throat> at that time in the 70s, they were very, they were very common. And so I think I just must have heard them a lot. Or maybe I was one in a previous life. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know the answer, but this, they've always done something special. Yeah. I don't like to say they're better than any other species. I mean, that's all silly. But for me, they just touch a little nice nerve. Yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons that you're so passionate about them now is they're they're massively under threat, right? So what is the situation currently for curlews in, in the UK and Ireland? At the end of 2015, curlews were um, upgraded, if you like, to the red list. So they became what's called near threatened, which is the same category as we put jaguars in. Wow. So they are um, likely to go extinct in the future. Yeah. So we've had dramatic declines uh, across the board in this country. In places like Southern Ireland, it's beyond dramatic. It's mm. on the brink of snuffing out. Am so, I right in saying it's like 97% yeah, decrease? Probably, in... I would say even more. So um, in the 1980s, there were, nobody quite knows because the counts weren't very accurate, but between five, seven, maybe even 10,000 pairs, breeding pairs in Southern Ireland. Uh, this last year, the count was 130. 130 pairs? Yeah. Like, in the whole of the country? In the whole of the country, breeding. That's quite sad. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's profoundly shocking. Yeah. In Wales, uh, again, another massive stronghold with all the rough grasslands and the uplands, mm. and, uh, which they so like, the wet areas... Um, again, the 1980s, lots and lots and lots, thousands of pairs. Um, the people I was talking to recently think there's fewer than 300, and even worse, they say they think the curlew's got just 15 years left. There's a really? breeding bird in Wales. So when I met you a, f a few years ago, we set up a Facebook group specifically about curlews in Ireland, and we called it the Irish Curlew Countdown, Seven Years to Save Them. Now, that's a couple of years ago, so we're obviously in even more dire situation well they've gone down since yeah, then yeah so there were nearly 200 pairs when in about 2016 yeah ish so they've dropped again um since then we've had lots of things happening yeah um so i did the 500 mile walk yeah, we'll say. talk about that in a second okay yeah. <laughs> but we've had we've seen over the last couple of years a rise in the interest of conservation and mm. efforts put in place hand on heart do I think they'll succeed in Ireland? All I can say is I hope so. Yeah, but it's not looking good. I don't honest. think it's looking great. No, no. quite shamefully for me <laughs> <laughs> and my dad, who you know very well. Indeed. Um, yeah, so what are the threats they face? Why are they declining so catastrophically? There's two major issues. Um, one is the complete transformation of the landscape over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, we've gone, since the Second World War, let's say, uh, we've gone very intensive in the way we farm the mm. landscape. A lot of drainage of wetland, ploughing up of grasslands and reseeding with fast-growing stuff, um, afforestation of Sitka spruce plantations, 
there's been a, a you know a big stocking density increases whatever it is we have transformed the landscape of the british isles and island and we have um taken away that lovely damp wet insect rich varied sward height habitat mm. which they so like yeah replaced it with monocultures not only that improved the land improved it yeah. i liked your little quotation marks around that um, uh, and as part from that, the, the fast-growing ryegrass, which has replaced a lot of the meadows they used to nest in, is now mown from May onwards to improve it to mown for silage, and that just chops them up. It chops them up when they're chicks because they haven't. They're not the eggs, yeah, yeah, and the eggs as well. So when they're nesting on the ground, yeah. Um, and apart from landscape, I think when we're in a, the position we're in now is that where they're clinging on in agricultural land, they need fairly intensive management, don't they, and protection. They seem to because, you know, when there's lots and lots and lots of birds around, you know, they, they don't nest in colonies, but they're kind of loose colonies, I suppose. They don't, but they like sort of to know that the curlews around. And um, they also like to know there's other ground nesting birds like lapwing and so on. So if a predator comes in, like a, a raptor or a fox or something, um, they all get together and make a hell of a noise yeah. and bombard it and, and see it off. See yeah. it off. Yeah. When you've just got a few dotted around, they can't do that. Just and they spend all their energy and time trying to defend their one little nest. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're busy seeing a crow off in the air and a fox comes in, or you're yeah. seeing a, a fox off and the crows come down, or whatever yeah. way around it is. I know firsthand from my dad, he's chairman of his local branch, Kildare branch of Birdwatch Ireland, and they've been looking after a pair of curlews on, on a local bog. And the first clutch of eggs got taken by a fox. Um, and the second one, they're in and out, kind of chasing off crows and buzzards when they fly over. But they got predated as well early one morning by, they think, a crow. So, yeah, the predator control will, co will come to in a little bit. But um, yes. it's difficult. They're, they're clinging on um, very fragile uh, kind of very populations, fragile. aren't they? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned a little bit you um, walked 500 miles for the curly, which is a pretty epic journey. <laughs> Um, tell us where that idea came from. Again, it's very hard to say, really. I, it just kind of came to me in a flash. I, I was thinking about curlews and wondering why things were looking so bad, reading the reports coming out of Southern Ireland at that time, saying 80% decline, 90% decline. I mean, what is going on? Mm. And um, and I suddenly thought, you know, I'll go on a walk to find out. I'd like to go and see for myself. And I thought, well, I'll go on a walk for them and, you know, find out. I'm going to tell you what, a 500-mile walk, because that kind of sounded quite fun. 500-mile walk, bits of proclaimers-like, isn't it? I was going to mention the proclaimers, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've heard that joke before. It is, and it just so <laughs> happened that um, a line from basically the west coast of Ireland through the east coast of England is roughly 500 miles. Right. And it all kind of fitted together. So you started on the west coast of Ireland? I actually, actually started in a skilling. Okay. And, um, and saw the RSPB project with um, uh, curlews on an island in the... Locker and Islands there, bombed down to Sligo and set off from there, basically. Yeah. And how long did it take you? About six and a half weeks. And who did you meet along the way or who did you make a point of meeting along the way? I really wanted to meet everybody. I wanted to meet farmers and conservationists and scientists, but I also wanted to meet poets. I wanted to meet people that never heard of them. I yeah. wanted to meet people that missed them because they'd gone. I wanted to talk to everybody that had an interest in curlews from whatever angle. You told me um, that some people that you spoke to, once you start talking to them about curlews, 
that was when they realised they were gone. Mm. They kind of didn't notice that they had disappeared, isn't that right? They really didn't. Yeah. And and it was very noticeable amongst the older people that when they would give talks along the way, people would just sort of say, you're right, when was the last time? And mm. it was almost like a, a sort of distress you could feel in the room. And, yeah. and then particularly in Ireland, people would say, this is just like the corn crake, and we're yeah. letting it happen again. Yeah. And, um, and one old man I met in uh, somewhere in Central Ireland, when I started talking to him about the curly and I played him the sound on my iPad, he actually started to cry. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. He said it took him right back to his childhood. To his childhood, probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, talking to my parents and grandparents, you know, they talk about the corncrake was in every field, basically, and with the advent of combine harvester and different ways of improving agricultural land, as I say, um, that's just a forgotten sound of Ireland. Curly, unfortunately, is going the same way, isn't it? It certainly yeah. is, very, yeah. very rapidly. Yeah. Um, what would you say, I, I know there's been a few things that have come out of your walk, um, in Ireland and in the UK, but in Ireland specifically, where the situation is that dire, what's come from your your walk to raise awareness, or what's happened since? So when I got back from the walk, or actually, actually when I was on the walk, I started to organise the first of four national conferences, and the first one was in Ireland. Um, and uh, out of that conference, where we just advertised, and if you're interested in curlews and conserving them, come to this conference. We were inundated. We were turning people away. It was amazing. Really? Yeah. Um, and out of that came something called the Curlew Task Force, uh, which is a government-funded, top-down sort of right, yeah. lads yeah. and lasses, this is what we're going to do. And it was organised like that, a sort of a, a task force. Um, and that's ongoing and doing really good work, struggling for funds and everything. Um, but there's no doubt that it's made a, you know, making an impression, certainly in some areas. Yeah. Um, and then the next one was in southern England, where, we, as I say, we're doing very badly, about 290, 80 pairs left. Um, and we held another conference in southern England. That came up with what was called the Curlew Forum, which is like a loose association of all these little different groups working on curlews and sort of information network, very different model. Yeah. Um, then in Wales, we got the Curlew Cymru, which is a round table of official organisations. And in Scotland... Curlew got a boost in the profile for work, something that had already been set up for working for waders. So the Curlew got a, its own little platform right away across the board. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then once you'd finished the walk, um, a glutton for punishment, you decided to write a book about <laughs> the walk <laughs> and about curly conservation. Yeah. It took you a while, didn't it? It did. It, yeah. took, it took ages because it was, in a way, it was um, easy in that the walk provided the structure. Yeah. But difficult in in that I'd never written a book of that magnitude before, and also trying to sort of be even-handed and trying to understand the issues and not get too emotional and not yeah. do all the blame game because where does that get you? Yeah, there's no point saying you know oh it's all the farmer's fault because it isn't the farmer's fault. We yeah. all eat and we yeah. all demand, we cheap, all demand food. cheap food, right? Yeah, yeah. So I... it's nothing as simple about it. No, and. Um... I talked to you before you released the book and you did predict that you would get criticised from some members of the farming community and some members of the conservation community as well, because one of the things I enjoyed about the book was how balanced it was and how fair it was that recognising there's different stakeholders here and recognising that the public have a role to play in demanding cheap food and farmers are trying to make a living and doing the best they can um, and that some conservationists uh, maybe the messaging they're putting out um, can be quite divisive and 
harmful to the cause at times. I did really admire that it's so balanced. I think one of the main chapters um, that kind of did that for me, and I thought this is going to shake, ruffle some feathers, uh, curly or otherwise, um, was about predator control. So unfortunately, one of the facts of curly conservation or any ground nesting birds like snipe and lapwing and that birds that nest on farmland is in the position we're in now where those populations are so fragile and that we're using the land in such a way that makes them very exposed and vulnerable to predation. One conservation fact is that we have to control predator populations if we're going to conserve these birds. But that's a very unsavoury uh, fact for a lot of people, right? It really is. And it's, it's, a, it's a topic which gets people very passionate. Yeah. I would say most people accept that position, but there are people on either sides of the extremes and mm. it's usually the people on the extremes that you hear most from. Yeah. Um, but I would still say that the vast majority of people accept that some form of limited predator control done by professionals is really important if we want to hold on to these birds um, and a whole suite of birds, not just curlews, as you say. Uh, but there are those, there's an element and it comes from a very good place, obviously, mm. which don't, who don't think that any animal should be killed for the sake of another one. That it's yeah. all our fault. Why should they pay the price? We should be putting the habitats back. We should be making it all okay again so that predator and prey can get into some kind of balance. And that's a you know such a lovely dream, but unfortunately in this multi-use and intensive landscapes we live in, it is just a dream at the yeah. moment. It's quite a, a noble position, but it's yes. not a realistic position in the short term, is it? Because no. we're not going to turn those landscapes around overnight. And in the meantime, while we're struggling to do that, a lot of these species are going to go extinct unless we do something more um, intensive in terms of management and control. That's for sure. Yeah. But it is a hard message. Yeah. And, you know, in the book I'm writing at the moment on our relationship with predators, which came out of this experience, I go with a gamekeeper to shoot a fox. And it's one of the most emotional things, mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to do it. I couldn't pull a trigger. But yeah. I expect someone else to do it and then feel very sort of, you know. Yeah, you have done that already. That's going to be. I went out, about, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was, it is nothing about conservation is easy. And anybody no. who thinks conservation is just about being nice to animals. Make a nature reserve and let them get on with it. Let it's not that simple, it. is it? It so isn't. No. Not in today's world. And, um, and <clears throat> I think we mess, we mix what we want with what is real. Yeah. And it's a very understandable way because we all want happiness yeah and we all want most of us want the world to live in a good way yeah but we've not made it like that mm. and somebody's got to start making some decisions yeah yeah and i guess making the distinction between what is predator control or what is protection we can talk about non-lethal methods of um, predator control like fencing off areas where we know there's curly nests but that doesn't stop the chicks being predated when they walk through the no, fence. They're very annoying chicks, early <laughs> chicks, because they will not sit still. If they if they just stayed in the nest or around the nest, like most little chicks do, you know, passerines or blue tits and so on. Yeah. Um, we could just protect them with an electric fence. Yeah. But all we can do is put an electric fence around and hope that badgers and foxes don't get the eggs. Yeah. Once the eggs have hatched into little chicks, they're off. Within two days, they've gone. Yeah. They could and be fields away. They right? could be, they just yeah. wander and wander and wander. And then, of course, there's so many things that can eat them out. Yeah. yeah. In some places, the predation rate is 100%. Yeah, I know. Yes, I'm home. 
Um, just going back to Ireland for, for a little bit, um, one of the shameful things that, that I would say as an Irishman is um, just the decimation of the peat bogs in Ireland that's happening. That's one of the main threats, I think, in terms of habitat loss for them there. What kind of conversations have you had with those stakeholders in Ireland about how that can continue or, or how the curlew can still be part of the Irish landscape? Well, actually, Sean, I went on a bit of a journey with that one myself, because when I first arrived in Central Ireland, I hadn't actually been to Central Ireland, not that I could remember, mm. not since I was really young, when a lot of the peat bog was probably still intact. intact yeah. Um, so when I came back, I hadn't walked through those very central, wet, boggy areas at all. And uh, I was with a farmer and um, we were driving to where I was going to spend the night. And I said, I said, what, 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 what is that field? I said, could you stop the car mm. a minute? And he said, oh, it's a board pneumonia bog. And I said, it's a what? Yeah. <laughs> I had literally never seen anything like it. It was just it's black. Alien landscape, it right? It was absolutely alien landscape of black, with great big sheets of black plastic, water channels. But it wasn't, obviously, it wasn't a field. It was a black mess. Yeah. And um, it's where board pneumonia take off the turf and throw it into the fire stations for power. So it's inefficient easy. way. Of, it's a massively inefficient uh, way. Generating energy, isn't it? It's an inefficient, highly polluting for greenhouse gases and highly polluting for the habitat. I mean, destructive of the habitat, of course it is. But then, you know, it's very easy to get on your high horse, isn't it? Mm. This shouldn't happen and this isn't appalling. Yeah. And it was an academic from UCD said, well, hold on a minute. He said, there are people here as well. Mm. And it provided a lot of jobs for a lot of people who were who wouldn't have them otherwise. A very low standard of living. Yeah. You know, he said you forget in the seventies, early seventies, before that, people were very poor in Central Ireland. Well, Bordnemona was lauded as a you know a brilliant yeah. thing to happen for turning wastelands into gold. Really. Yeah, exactly. And I think that Irish peat moss in gardening, absolutely massive export actually. So um, yeah. Although it's coming to an end. It is. Peat is now a dirty word in gardening, which is good. Yeah. Although you can still buy it. Yeah, you can. Um, But yes. um, And so I sort of, yes, I agree with that. There there was a human element to it and there is a human element to it. But we have to find a better way for Mm -hmm. people to live. Um, And uh, I did, I went to talk to Bordnemona as well. And Bordnemona did say that they were phasing very quickly. And I think more quickly than they told me a couple of years ago going out of peat to more mixed biofuels okay. and they wanted to see the end of peat burning and uh, you know that was good i think it was such a shock to my system i found it very hard to stomach at the time it is horrible when you see it for yeah, the first time i mean is. i've not grown up in those areas but i've seen them throughout my life and mm. it, it literally is just absolute destruction of mm. the environment um you know for for peat um quite hard hard to look at mm. yeah um, going back to the kind of um, predator control issue, obviously we've talked about different stakeholders and it being a contentious topic. So the idealists of the world would say we shouldn't be killing animals and things. But what about um, some other conservationists who maybe toe a harder line than you and don't straddle that grey area of there's different stakeholders, there's different considerations here. Some very high profile conservationists have been very outspoken Um and maybe critical of, of you um, in terms of your messaging there. Yeah, I think I think there's a, if you're not with us, you're against us sort of attitude. I think people, again, um, it's a very passionate end of the argument that if you don't go all out into this battle, if you don't throw yourself wholeheartedly and just stand up for the cause and be fine, then, then you're against us. And I yeah. think there is a, an element of that going on. And 
again, I understand where it comes from, but I just don't think it's helpful because I don't think we've ever won battles by throwing insults at people on yeah. either side. And even if that's how you're perceived, you know, whenever there's big conflicts in human society, um, all the hard work is done in the background, is there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very often. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's an issue which doesn't fit well with people. The mm. Killing for conservation, killing for sport. And I think there's a, a big element of people that say, well, predator control is just supporting things like grouse shooting and, and we shouldn't be nowhere near that um, as conservationists. That's a very complicated area as well. I mean, is that right or isn't it? Um, all of these things you can't package up in simple little sound bites. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to bring up the example which illustrates it very well, how difficult it is to formulate an opinion and to say this is the way forward. Um, grouse moors in Scotland, right, very contentious, very topical right now in terms of um, UK conservation and the persecution of hen harriers and other birds of prey in Scotland illegally um, is a, yeah, a massive, mm. massive issue. But grouse moors have some conservation value for curlews and other wading birds. Mm. So it, it's never just, you know, one issue. It's never like black or white, is it? It's, it's always no. kind of... And I think when I set off on the 500 mile walk, I didn't. I had no idea of any of this. Mm. And I didn't know that I'd be right in the middle of the grouse moor debate. But it turns out that curlews are three times more likely to breed successfully on a grouse moor wow. than outside um, and because of the intense predator control and the management of the, the sport. Yeah. It's not the grouse shooting, it's the management of the land that they do very well in. They're a ground nesting bird. If you manage for ground nesting birds, all ground nesting birds do well, including hen harriers. Yeah. Um, so curlew, lapwing, golden plover. Um, pipit, skylarks, all of it, snipe, yeah. red shank, everything it does really well, and red grouse. <laughs> yeah. Um, the things that don't do well on grouse moors are the things that eat those. Yeah. And so there is intensive control of um, foxes and crows, all sorts of mustelids, not badgers, well, not officially, um, and not officially birds of prey. But we do know that birds of prey are illegally controlled. Yeah. I mean, in fact, hen harriers. A, a, a recent study this year came out this year, 10 years of data showed that 70% of tagged harriers disappeared over grouse Over grouse moors, yeah. And there's also been some legal interference with hen harrier nests, um, pricking the eggs or coating the eggs so that they, their reproductive success is limited. Is that correct? Uh, legal, you mean? Legal. Um, I don't know of any legal control of hen harriers. What, right. they, the, what has been, is happening is that Natural England um, are allowing a trial whereby scientists, if they see a, more than one pair of hen harriers on a grouse moor, they can go in, take those eggs away and re rear them in captivity and then release them away from the grouse moor. Okay. And that's caused massive outcry because although that may well mean we get more hen harriers and we start to populate the wider countryside mm -hmm. and we keep them away from the grouse moors, conservationists feel that that's, um, that, that that's a sop to the grouse industry and that we're wrapping our conservation around the needs of an elitist blood sport. Yeah. You can see both sides of the argument. Again, yeah. I can see both sides. The bottom line is, do we want more hen harriers? Yes. At the moment, is that the only way we're going to get them? It seems to be because yeah. nothing else has worked. But I guess the big question at this point in time 
when they're so threatened and when predator control is a part of the solution in the short term. The big question to ask everyone involved is, do we want curlews, isn't it? Or do we want ground nesting birds? Mm. Because as unsavoury as it is, some of the aspects of protecting them are going to involve things people don't like. And we need to make a decision in our landscape as it is right now. Are we going to protect them or not? Right. I think that is the question. And it's not up to some sort of other entity out there, which just if we just let it all get on, you know, that mm. it's up to us. We live in such a populated, controlled landscape now. There isn't an inch of Britain that isn't somehow managed or yeah. affected by people. So what do we want? If we don't want any predator control at all, then we can choose to do that. That's fine. We mm. can do that. Yeah. But be prepared for what that means. Yeah. And that means we will leave, lose some species and others will decline dramatically. Yeah. If we want some of those, um, then we do need to do some predator control. But it should only be localised. It should be very short time that we do it mm. over and it should only be done by people that are trained. Yeah. yeah. Shall we end the curly conversation on some good news? Tell me about the um, fostering chicks that Slimbridge and the Wildfell and Wetland Trust are doing. Yes, That's been a, a bit of a success story, hasn't it's it? It's been a fantastic success story because... As, as I said, uh, Southern English curlews are in a very bad way. And we did realise, we found out, that some curlew nests, in fact quite a lot, um, were being destroyed around airfields. Okay. So curlews quite, you know, went in the short grasses and the, the meadows around airfields and the, um, the military were destroying them because you don't want curlews flying around where there's aircraft, understandably. Yeah. Um, and so this year... Um, Slimbridge, WWT, Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust in Slimbridge said to the military, look, instead of destroying them, can we have the eggs? And we'll raise them in captivity and we'll release them into Gloucestershire to boost the populations. Brilliant. And that's happened this year. For the first year. Yes. Yeah. And the chicks are out there and um, some of them are around. Obviously, I think we've lost some, but some are about and they, we can tell because they've all been ringed. They're still in the sort of roughly the seven estuary sort of area. And right. let's, they won't breed for two years, but the proof of the pudding is if they come back in two years' time and we get, yeah. get more curlies in the system. Because what we need right now are breeding adults, more breeding need, adults, don't we? We need more birds Short in the term. system yeah, yeah. Yeah. while we get other things right. And are farmers in those areas being compensated in any way or incentivised to manage the land for Not curlies? at the moment. Um, there's no mechanism for doing that in, yeah. in agri-environment schemes at the moment, but... We have been talking to government and the new idea, you know, public money, public money for public goods is a, is a, is a great thing because that means farmers may well be um, uh, given money to look after curlews on their land and compensate yeah. if they don't cut for silage or whatever. And so far, all farmers have been fantastic. Great. So the future is hopeful. The future, I think... Is patchy, but where it's hopeful, it's hopeful. But I'm not giving up yet. And, and why would you ever give up? I don't think you will ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, quite passionate about curlews is an understatement. It's great. It's good to have someone fighting their corner as much as you have. Um, so thanks on behalf of everyone for that. Um, what's next? What else, else are you working on? You mentioned a new book. Yeah, so the new book is came out of Curly Moon, which is when I realised how complicated our relationship with predators. So I'm trying to grapple with that one. Wish me luck. Um, I'm also spearheading a campaign to introduce a GCSE in natural history into English schools. That would be fantastic, wouldn't yeah, it? To try and get education, to, to put nature into education and yeah. get the next generation to be literate about the natural world. 
yeah, I mean, just society has just moved away from nature and the outdoors, hasn't it? And kids just don't get out and do things that I and guess can't we... can't even name normal things. Well, we've had several kind of um, species and flowers and things taken out of the children's dictionary in Blackberry. the last few years, right? Blackberry um, was a handheld communication device. Oh, right. Not a bramble fruit. <laughs> no. a... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Um, yeah, I'm sure you were the same as me out looking under stones and in fields and climbing trees and, and things like that. Um, I definitely think a GCSE in natural history is long overdue hopefully. and hopefully um, makes a difference to the next generation. Mm. All right. Well, Mary, it's been an absolute ple- pleasure to talk to you. I would encourage everyone to look at Mary's website. What is it? Cur- um, Um If you haven't read the book Curly Moon, I would highly recommend it. It's fascinating. It tells an amazing human story, but also an amazing story of conservation and the threats that Curly face. And yeah, thank you very much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Sean's Wildlife Podcast and be sure to subscribe for more exciting episodes. For this episode, I'd like to thank my lovely guest, Mary Caldwell. The Curly recording belongs to David Farrow, downloaded from Zeno Canto. And Sean's Wildlife Podcast is produced and edited by Thomas Dinas. Mm -hmm.